We're continuing our series in the book of Acts, and we are on Acts chapter 15. I'll read it for us, and uh, we'll begin. <coughs> this is the reading of God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles uh, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our Father nor we have been able to, hear, to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas, and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is God's word. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for this time, and we pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit and fill us with your word. Uh, help give us uh, not only clarity uh, as to um, what you want to speak to us through uh, this passage, but also give us the power of transformation of heart, transformation of being, that we would uh, come to know this great gospel uh, in which we have been saved by grace and that your word would refresh us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Man, I think my eyes are getting worse. I could, I could like not read this very well. <laughs> anyway, uh, we are going through the book of Acts and we have last week just finished Paul's first missionary journey and <clears throat> we're coming to a passage that to be quite frank, I don't think gets much attention. If I were to guess um, how many sermons have been preached on this passage, uh, I don't know, maybe in like the last 50 years, my guess is probably not very many. Uh, 
this is a story in which like the church leaders are now gathering and what they're doing is they're debating a theological issue uh, some kind of controversy that arose and there's of course this disagreement that comes out of mission and as I said a couple of weeks ago anytime there's any kind of movement anytime there's like a missionary encounter uh, one of the things as good as that good as it is one of the things that it also does is it tends to create tension and uh, it tends to create some kind of disagreement and that's what happened here in the early church as the gospel expands now to the nations uh, towards the Gentiles there is some disagreement over whether Gentile converts had to be circumcised whether these Gentile converts who were not Jewish people had to follow the law of Moses and specifically men the people of the Pharisees were saying unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas, they debate with them and they are appointed to go to Jerusalem where the other apostles and the other elders are gathered and they debate this question. So <clears throat> uh, I do remember uh, many years ago uh, when I was part of like a, a, a small group in this church. Uh, I think Pastor Fred was part of that small group. Uh, one of the things that we decided to do is we read through the book of Acts together as a small group, and every single day people would write reflections and try to draw some kind of spiritual insight from whatever chapter they were assigned for that day. And I do remember distinctly uh, the person who had to do Acts chapter 15 uh, basically wrote, I don't know what we're supposed to gain from this passage, right? <laughs> I don't know why this is even here. What is the purpose of this? And it's a, you know, it's a good question because it could seem like a little bit irrelevant to us at first, especially because... Uh, we're not really uh, like debating whether someone needs to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, it's not relevant to our particular context. That's more relevant to a Jewish context. And second, uh, I also think that in our culture, we, we tend to have like a lower view of institutions in general. And therefore, what really matters to a person is like their individual belief and Therefore, I don't know how much credence we give to like institutions or the church or denomination to say like this is what we should believe, right? We, oh, we are part of a denomination, and <coughs> uh, I don't know. You're probably not privy to this, but denominations have like these theological debates all the time, and usually what happens, I guess, in our denomination, the <coughs> Christian Reformed Church, they form like a study committee. They spend a couple years like studying the issue. Then they write a report, and then after the report, uh, they make recommendations to the denomination. Every year, there's something called synod. Synod is something where representatives or delegates from each like region are sent to vote on matters of the denomination. And uh, synod is something that I hope never to be picked to go to because <laughs> it's like a week of your time in June, and it's a lot of business meetings, right? And it's not like it's not super exciting. And sometimes it's like very controversial and last year's meeting was especially controversial because they were debating uh, matters of human sexuality, which I would say arises out of our modern context. And they're asking questions like, you know, how does a church engage in this particular culture and be faithful to the scriptures? And of course, not everybody agrees on the conclusions. And uh, it was very controversial. There was like a, a a small minority of people who were very upset at the, the result and they said they would leave the denomination. Uh, Dennis checks the mail for us and we get this magazine from the denomination called Banner and I was just flipping through it today and there's an article about, <laughs> about it today. Korean American pastors 
discuss sexuality report with committee co-chair, right? So uh, just so you're aware, we are part of a denomination and these kinds of things are, are happening. Um, and if you think about Paul and Barnabas, like a lot of the questions that are being asked about these topics, it, it's not in a vacuum, but I would say giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. It's not just like, oh, what do we believe? But people are really thinking like, how can the church be more effective in mission? How can the church be a better witness to the gospel? And uh, looking at some of these controversial topics, and we have these missionary counters with cultures that have different values uh, than maybe traditional Christian values. It's kind of like, what, what do we do with that, right? It leads to some tension. And if you think about Paul and Barnabas resolving uh, this theological debate about circumcision and about whether Gentiles should have to follow the law of Moses, it had to be very important to them because they put a pause on their missionary work to the Gentiles and they traveled to Jerusalem to debate this matter, right? To get a resolution on this matter. Now, I, I am a, also a product of modern culture in that I don't particularly like to get involved in like institutional work and uh, ever since I've gone bivocational, I'm trying to, like, let go of it a little bit, but the denomination keeps, like, trying to reel me in and, and assign more, more work to me. Uh, you know, it's, like, I, I don't think I'm the only pastor who feels this way, that it's, like, the least favorite aspect of ministry is, like, these, like, denominational things and duties. It's formal. You have to make a motion. Then you have to have somebody second that motion. Then you have to have a discussion in order to pass or reject that motion. And don't get me wrong. I think all of that is actually very important. I completely understand why it's necessary. Um, it's just not very fun. I would rather very much be in like a prayer meeting or a Bible study. I would rather very much be, uh, you know, even talking to somebody who had questions about Christianity and the gospel. Those things to me are much more fun. And I imagine somebody like Paul and Barnabas, that's much more fun for them too. But this matter is so important that they decide, again, to put a pause on their work, uh, on their work of evangelism and planting churches in these cities and going to synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. And they go back to Jerusalem uh, to deal with this institutional matter of the church. I think in our cultural moment, people don't really have a problem with uh, spirituality. Uh, people often say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And you kind of dissect that. I think what they're saying is, you know, I believe in some kind of higher power, but I just don't think religion should be institutionalized. I don't like the structural nature of some of the, these religions. And I think when you get to the root of that, what that really means is I want a religion that I can create for myself. I want a religion of the self that has little accountability, that allows me to believe what I want, and that allows me to do what I want to be my true, authentic self. That's what it really means. Uh, when I was in college, I lived with six other guys. And <coughs> Gene and Sedge, are you, you know th some of these guys. Let's see if you can guess who said this. <laughs> During my first year of living together with them, people kept the apartment relatively clean. Okay, which is pretty impressive for seven uh, college males. During the second year of living there, oh my gosh, people just stopped cleaning. And it was like the most disgusting place to live. And I remember going into the kitchen one day and like the dishes were piled up like for weeks. And there was like this one pot, I guess somebody made rice and didn't clean out the pot of rice. And there was like old rice in there. And it was so old, I started to see like maggots in the rice. I was about to throw up, right? Completely disgusting. I was like, I'm not cleaning this. So I was like, I'm just throwing this away. So I threw the whole pot out. I gathered everybody together and I said, 
all right, guys, we need to get organized, right? We need to come up with a cleaning schedule, and we need to divide the responsibility. You know what I did? Uh, I created like a little creative like pinwheel, right? I divided it into like seven, seven pies, and then <clears throat> around the pinwheel, I put like the, the duties. And I said, every week, we'll just turn the wheel, and everybody will have it. Brilliant, right? Anyway, you know what they said? Come on, we're Christian, right? We know we, know we should clean. We don't need that. You know what happened? <laughs> Nobody cleaned. Uh, hey, even a house needs to be institutionalized, right? <laughs> uh, you think about a church with much more complexity. Of course, churches need to be institutionalized. Of course, there needs to be some kind of order. Uh, and again, order not for the sake of order, but order for the sake of the gospel to flourish, order for the sake of the mission of the church to flourish, order for the sake of uh, the discipleship of people within the church to flourish. In the context of this council meeting in Jerusalem, they need some theological precision because it mattered to the message of the gospel. It mattered to the mission of the church. It mattered to how are we going to go to these Gentile nations who don't have necessarily a Jewish background and what are we going to not only say the gospel is, but what are we going to say the gospel requires of them. You see, one of the central features to a Jewish identity was the practice of circumcision because that was the original sign of the covenant for these Jewish people. For them, being circumcised according to the custom of Moses is what it meant to identify as someone who belongs to God, as somebody who is in covenant with God. And when Jesus Christ died and when he was raised again, it introduces this entire new era, and this new era leads to some new questions. One of the most important being, what does it actually mean to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean you have to be circumcised? Does it mean you have to follow the Mosaic law? Does it mean you have to refrain from eating uh, rare steaks? Right? That, that's what the debate is about. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? And I do think all contexts where there is this missionary encounter wrestles with similar questions. What does it mean to be a Christian? Do you have to follow certain customs? Do you have to have a certain theological view? Do you have to have certain practices? And of course, right, in the context of the modern world, the human sexuality report, right, do you have to have a particular stance or practice uh, in terms of one's sexuality to be considered, right, Christian or not? Right? These are things that are being debated. And for the most part, we probably hold assumptions as to what it means to be a Christian until there is this maybe cross-cultural missionary encounter that begins to challenge some of those assumptions. took a class in seminary, and we were talking about uh, a missionary who brought the gospel to some uh, remote tribes in, uh, in Africa. And some of these tribes, they had the practice of polygamy. And I guess it would, uh, the same would apply to some uh, Muslim context as well. And one of the men uh, was converted and he had several wives. So in this missions class we were talking about, it's like, well, if you're a missionary and this guy has like several wives and you, you're kind of wrestling with the question, well, what does it look like for this person to now repent and faithfully follow uh, Jesus Christ? Uh, do, you, uh, do you tell this guy, you know, you should divorce all your wives except for one? Uh, do you tell him you should stay married to all of them? Uh, you see how like these missionary encounters can lead to some complex questions and I think, actually, some of those complex questions would apply 
to today and the human sexuality report especially with the legalization of things like gay marriage right if somebody becomes a believer i guess what does it actually mean to become a faithful christian what kind of practices are you supposed to give up and what kind are you supposed to maintain and hold on to not easy answers which is why it takes like years for some of these denominations to study these questions and to really think and ponder about it um how did paul and barnabas and the early church deal with this question they go and they meet together in a council they gather together to consider the matter they look at scripture together they debate different perspectives together and paul has a perspective of doing ministry to the gentiles while some of these jewish christians in jerusalem maybe they had their own perspectives and this passage highlights what peter actually says in this meeting because if you recall uh, it wasn't until peter had this vision about the gentiles uh, about clean and unclean right that he in a couple chapters ago that he realized that god shows no partiality to the jews and that shows even somebody like peter even somebody who was one of the original 12 who lived with jesus for uh at least three years and was with jesus for at least three years even somebody like peter could have a blind spot and it wasn't until uh, there we go again it wasn't until god gave him this dream that that blind spot was revealed we all grow up in a very particular culture and because of that we assume the way things ought to be uh even if you i would apply that to like we have particular ways of expressing christianity right um <clears throat> for example uh i think many of us grew up in an asian culture in an asian context i don't know if you've ever had this experience i grew up in a town where uh, we were the only asian family so most of my friends growing up were either white or black and i actually didn't have any friends until first grade so i never went to a friend's house until first grade can you believe that i remember going to my friend's house in first grade and i walked into the door and you know what i did i took off my shoes right and uh he's like what are you doing i was like i'm taking off my shoes because we're going inside the house he's like why are you doing that i was like isn't that what you're supposed to do he's like no 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 we keep our shoes on i was like why <laughs> right? i was like that's so dirty why would you do that uh until you encounter something different right you just kind of assume uh things are should be like a certain way but then you encounter like maybe a different culture and all of a sudden those assumptions become challenged and then maybe in that moment i was like oh yeah yeah oh not everybody takes their shoes off inside hmm hmm maybe that's not the right way no that's the right way to go right we should take our <laughs> inside anyway um because we have these assumptions oh my gosh is that like a fire here or something okay because we have these assumptions and they don't get challenged until uh we encounter somebody who believes differently uh we we do have to have like some of these debates and uh i guess if you're conflict averse which I, i i think i am uh you don't necessarily like having some of these debates but i think mission entails that if you're uh if you take mission seriously then some of these debates and differences uh some of these blind spots that it exposes some of these like looking at your own perspective critically and saying oh i assume this but is that the right thing uh a lot of these things are very important and when it comes to the mission of the church and i would say specifically the church as an institution 
these things are also important, which is why it's probably better to do theology uh, in a context of community. And I would say even better, it's probably better to do theology in the context of a global community uh, to see what Christians who are in Asia and South America and Africa and Europe, right, uh, how their theology develops and see, hey, do we have certain assumptions that maybe we should be challenged? Do they have certain assumptions that should be challenged? And you kind of come together as a community and debate these things. Jewish believers probably automatically assumed anyone who follows Jesus should get circumcised because it's a sign of the covenant for Hebrews. That was just an assumption they had. Even Peter has this assumption. <clears throat> but when Peter is, his blind spot is revealed, right? He, his opinion changes. And then in this moment, he stands up and he addresses a council of apostles and elders. And this is what he says. He says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, them meaning the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. What is he saying here? He's clarifying something about the very nature of the gospel. He's saying our hearts are cleansed by faith, not obedience to the law. He's saying that Jews and Gentiles are saved through grace, not by following the law. And therefore, why are we, we being the Jewish believers, why are we adding an additional burden and placing a yoke on the disciples? Now, before we judge these Jewish believers too quickly, we should realize we, we do that kind of stuff all the time, right? We place all these additional yokes and burdens all the time. We say, it's not enough to know that God loves me and accepts me, but I also need to uh, reach a certain level in my life, in my career, I need to be married by a certain age. I need to be uh, a certain kind of parent. Uh, and if I'm not, then I'm unlovable and I'm unacceptable and God can't accept me. Uh, these are burdens that weigh us down. And what it reflects, I think, is unbelief in our hearts. And as Peter says, we are putting God to the test when we do that. We put God's grace to the test. We're testing it to see, is God's grace really as good and powerful as we profess it to be? Or do we need God's grace plus all of these other things? When we add burdens, it says the gospel's not enough to save us. It says we need Jesus and we need something else. And when we say that, you know what? We're actually not really free. We still have shackles. When we say it's not enough that Jesus died for me, we are doing the very same things that these Jewish believers are doing. And in our case... It's not Jesus plus Mosaic law, but it's a different burden. Sometimes these burdens come externally. Sometimes these burdens come from our parents. Sometimes these burdens come from social expectations. Sometimes these burdens come from a spouse. Sometimes these burdens even come from the church. And these burdens can crush us, especially when we can't carry them. One of the wonderful things about the gospel is it is supposed to free us Burdens crush us. Burdens suffocate us, especially when we can't carry the weight of those burdens. And that's what Peter is saying about his forefathers. Even they could not bear the yoke of the law and it crushed them. But if we want to be free, it really means it's not Jesus plus another burden, 
but it's Jesus and his free grace alone coming to save us and freeing us from these burdens. That's why I say Christianity is ultimately about freedom. That's Paul's entire point in Galatians 5 when he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are not under the penalty of the law anymore because Christ paid that penalty with his life. We are no longer under the burden of having to uh, define ourselves, define our identity uh, through our accomplishments. We are no longer under the burden of giving meaning and worth to our lives based on what we, who we are and what we've accomplished because he has set us free from these burdens. He has carried our sin upon himself. He has overcome our deficiencies, our weaknesses, our, our powerlessness. And he has lifted us up and filled us up and received us by his grace. And therefore the gospel cannot be about adding more burdens because Jesus freed us from these burdens. And if that's the case, I think verse 20 is a little bit confusing then, or it can be a little bit confusing, but this is where nuance comes in. So after concluding that Gentiles should no longer be burdened with Mosaic customs, why do they resolve to write a letter telling Gentile churches to do the following? Abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Uh, So it doesn't seem like just because the burdens have been lifted, it's like a free-for-all licentiousness and I can do whatever I want, right? Uh, Freedom is uh, defined a little bit differently in Scripture than from the modern cultural context. You ask yourself, uh, you know, we might not be able to understand things like, or we we can maybe understand things like, you know, yeah, you shouldn't worship idols and uh, you should refrain from sexual morality, uh, but then you kind of get to the other two, and it's like, well, why, why are the Gentiles told to refrain from things that have been strangled and uh, from, from blood? That's why I said rare steak, right? From blood. Aren't these Jewish customs, and aren't they just doing the opposite of what Peter is saying here? Aren't they just kind of adding to the burden? I think in order to understand what's going on here, and um, I, I, I mean, admittedly, I don't think I uh, completely... Uh, have a firm uh, interpretation of this. This this passage has always troubled me a little bit, but here's what I think. Uh, I think we do have to give nuance to what it means to be free. There's a sociologist named Robert Bella, and he says there's two ways to view freedom. The first way to view freedom is you can view it as a lack of constraints. And under that definition, um, you, you know, I just did a wedding last week, and mar- marriage could be viewed as impinging on your freedom. Uh, Actually, in the wedding, I was like, you know, it's uh, sometimes, like, I'm 13 years in marriage, and uh, I was like, you know, sometimes it, it's nice to be alone. <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't get any alone time anymore, so I just, like, I stay in the bathroom longer because that's the only time I get alone time. Uh, and, you know, I began the sermon that way, but I didn't end it that way, of course. <laughs> But, you know, marriage can feel like that. What's a joke? The wedding ring is like the world's smallest handcuffs. Why? Because marriage does constrain what you as an individual can and cannot do. Uh, that's one way to view freedom. But a second way to view freedom is uh, you're free to do what you're created to be. And I think that's more in line with the biblical understanding of freedom. Hence, sometimes constraints can actually be liberating if it constrains you to be what you were created to be or do what you were created to do. Hence, marriage can be liberating 
even though there are constraints if ultimately it forms you to be selfless and loving. There is a quote by a pastor named John Stott, and it is a little bit long, but uh, I like it, so let me read it. He says this, he says, True love places constraints on the lover, for love is essentially self-giving. And this brings us to a startling Christian paradox. True freedom is freedom to be my true self as God made me and meant me to be. And God made me for loving. But loving is giving, self-giving. Therefore, in order to be myself, I have to deny myself and give myself. In order to be free, I have to serve. In order to live, I have to die to my own self-centeredness. In order to find myself, I have to lose myself in loving. True freedom is, then, the exact opposite of what many people think. It is not freedom from all responsibility to God and others in order to live for myself. That is bondage to my own self-centeredness. Instead, true freedom is freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and others. How does that relate to this? What is the council write, uh, why does the council write a letter to a Gentile saying they must abstain from these four things? I think it's because they're ultimately free in Christ. And therefore, when they write to them to abstain from uh, some of these things, I don't think it's necessarily to add a burden on them because they've already determined that the gospel is about freedom and uh, obedience to the Mosaic law should not be something that should be added as a burden onto the Gentiles. But it was something that might help them to love their and serve their Jewish brothers and sisters who might see some of these things as a stumbling block to, uh, for fellowship. Uh, and you read some of the New Testament letters, like this is a big issue. It's being talked about all the time from, uh, in Paul's letters. Paul makes a similar appeal in 1 Corinthians 8. He says you could eat food sacrificed to idols because it's just food and these idols are dead, right? It doesn't really mean anything, but refrain from doing it for the sake of the weaker brother. Christ has set you free so that you can deny yourself things that may be permissible, but you can deny yourself in love for others. And that is a true expression of biblical freedom. It's not a lack of external constraints, but it is actually being who God created us to be, part of which includes being able to deny ourselves for the sake of loving others and for the sake of maintaining the bond of unity. Gentile churches might have seen the letter that was sent to them in a negative way because the council told them to abstain from them. But the good news here is, not in the passage we read, but in the passage after, we actually find out how the Gentiles responded. And what it says is, they received the letter, it was read to them, and they rejoiced. They rejoiced, actually, because of this letter, because of its encouragement. I think they can only rejoice if they know that they were free in Christ and saw this not as a constraint, but saw this as an opportunity to love and serve their Jewish fellow believers. I think they saw it as an encouragement, not because it's like, oh, we're not getting what we want or we are getting what we want, but it was reinforcing uh, the message of the gospel that in Christ, because of his cross, through his grace alone, we have been set free from sin and death. And the very reasons why we rejoice when we first received the Holy Spirit and heard the gospel message and converted and gave our hearts and our lives to Christ Um, that still holds true and maintains to be true. And uh, they're saying we don't have to follow this Mosaic law that we didn't grow up in. But they're saying, uh, you know, maybe, not explicitly, but I'm I'm thinking maybe for the sake of 
maintaining unity of the church, maybe for the sake of fellowship between Gentiles and Jewish believers. Um, in this particular moment, they're saying, hey, refrain from eating uh, anything that was strangled and uh, from uh, refrain from eating blood. And my guess is maybe they were willing to do it because they saw uh, the power of the gospel and uh, the implications of the gospel and what God wants for his church. Let's pray together.